0: All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you are leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you'll be a burden to someone or you don't feel like you should weigh that, put that weight on your inner surface. Call the hotline at nine eighty and take option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at d underscore misfit nation. It's d underscore misfit nation. This will keep you up to date with our latest news, episodes, and of course, our great guests. Speaking of which, our next guest is a retired New York Police Department detective who has written four humorous books about the New York City Police Department. In addition to writing books, he is a professional raconteur with over a hundred podcast, radio, and television interviews, and a contributor to the syndicated radio program Sterling on Sundays. So, without further ado, let's welcome the Misfit to the Misfit Nation, Vic Ferrari, twenty-year. Retired New York City detective turned author. Welcome, Vic. Rich, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's great to you know link up and uh, knowing that we uh, really lived only about an inch and a half apart from each other growing up. So I mean, this is this is amazing. You grew up on one side of the Hudson River. I was on the other, and uh, you you took care of those mean streets in New York for 20 years. And uh, I applaud you for that and all the all your brothers and sisters that were with you. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate that. So Vic, if you don't mind, I mean, I just gave a little blurb about you there. If you don't mind telling us a little bit about your history from as far back as you want to go, if you want to go in deep detail or whatever, to where we are, how you got to becoming an author and where we are now.
1: Sure. So I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City, lower middle class family. My dad was a butcher. My mom was a stay at home mom until I was in my teens. When I was about five years old, my mom used to take me to the movie theater, my brother and I, and around the corner from the movie theater was a police station. And on the way to the movie theater, I'd run up to the police cars and look in the window and see the equipment in there. And then I'd watch the cops coming and going from the precinct and how they carried themselves. And sometimes they'd open up the police car and let me hit the siren or put a hat on me or give me a nightstick to play with. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. By age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. And then we'd go around the neighborhood, manhunt. And, you know, we'd go into a deli and we'd have some wanted poster, some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Louisiana. And that could be that fucker right there, you know. So <laughs> I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I grew up watching all these op shows and the Rockford Files and the French Connection. I, I knew I wanted to be a police officer. So by 20 years old, I took the exam. By 21, I went- I went to the New York City Police Academy. I had a great 20-year career. I worked in a lot of different units. 15 out of my 20 years was in plain clothes. I worked in the South Bronx as a patrol cop. I worked in a DUI unit. I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division doing buy and bust operations. And then my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on cars for resale, a lot of mafia and organized crime cases when i retired i moved down to sunny florida and i thought it'd be a good idea to get back into law enforcement and i got my certification i became a police officer down in florida big mistake because <laughs> i went so here i am in my 40s and i go i come from america's largest police department as a detective doing organized crime and i'm back on the road so yeah. now it's drunks it's domestics I'm like what the fuck did i get myself involved in and there's a big difference from being in law enforcement in new york and florida it's like having a stroke and having to learn everything all over again the basics are the same but it's the devil is in the details so like for argument's sake i spent a day in training learning how to wrestle an alligator we don't have alligators in the Bronx. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, no, you got to get in back of them. And each police cause got duct tape and you just tape his mouth. I'm like, well, can't we just fucking shoot these things? And they, they don't want you shooting alligators in Florida. <laughs> so I was a cop in Florida for about eight months. I said, you know what? This isn't working for me. I resigned, bored out of my mind. And uh, friends and family said, you know, you got all these Funny and wild police stories. You know how to tell a story. Why don't you start writing about your NYPD career? And at first, I was apprehensive because law enforcement is a very tight knit community. If I'm going to, I didn't want to write a tell tell all books and then be sour grapes. That's just not the way I am because I had a great career, right? I got a lot of friends still on the job or worked in law enforcement, so I said to myself, I'm going to write these behind-the-scenes books about the New York City Police Department. I don't want to get anybody divorced, and I don't want to get anybody fired or embarrassed, so with my books, the stories are basically true, but I change the names, the dates, the ranks, the locations. I might embellish on some stories or move a character from one time period to another, but the basis of these stories, a lot of these things have happened, And it's been a great, you know, once I started writing these books, they started selling. And um, we were speaking off air earlier that the only way you're going to for a self-published author, the only way you're going to sell your books is if you promote yourself. So now, I mean, a third of my time is spent, you know, going on radio and podcast shows where people like yourself are nice enough to put me on my shows and speak about my books.
0: Right. I understand that. Uh, and then, like we talked earlier, it, it's a uphill climb, which you'd publish yourself because you don't have that uh, uh, corporate background behind you, really. So it, it's you. You are the corporation at that point, And you have to do all the, the legwork and uh, and basically sell you to others. And that's probably the hardest thing to do is to sell yourself mm-hmm. when you just want to really sell the product, you're, the product you're selling, which is right for you is the book. And a lot of people don't really want to jump in and say, oh, that's great. You have a book, especially friends and family get tired of saying, oh, yeah, he's selling this now. He's selling that. You got to get outside that circle somehow and what what you're doing now with the podcast. And that's a that's a great way to get your name and your, of course, your work out there.
1: Right. And, And, you know, I mean, you got to make yourself interesting. So, and, and I probably, I, you probably have had guests on and you're saying to yourself, you know, 10 seconds into the interview, oh, Jesus Christ, what did I get myself involved in? So as a guest, you got to make yourself interesting and you got to know what you, you know, you, you got to make your book and yourself interesting to the
0: audience. Definitely. If, if, you, if the book's not interesting to you yourself, it's hard to sell that to someone else. And uh, I think that's where a lot of uh, authors fail is they think if they write it, it has to be awesome you got to write something that someone else wants to read not just something that you're passionate about as well
1: exactly and i'm lucky because a lot of people find true crime and law enforcement you know interesting and i'm lucky i mean listen if i was a telephone repairman and listen i have nothing against telephone repairmen but if a telephone repairman wrote a book chances are it's not going to sell very well i'm lucky enough i had a career that a lot of people find interesting
0: But definitely, especially in the location that where you were, where you did the majority of your police work, not your eight months of wrestling alligators here. Your first 20 years where you're you're doing real police work and uh, you were doing the undercover stuff. You were going against organized crime in the city that, well, almost every organized crime movie is made about is uh, New York City. So there's not one. There's not many organized crime movies out there or gangland movies that are out there that don't revolve around New York City. So you were right in the heartbeat of that. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of awesome things there and some things that you'll, you'll never understand why you saw it, but you had to live with it. And now you can write about it.
1: Yeah. I equate a 20 year career with the New York city police department is you've got a front row seat to the circus <laughs> and there's lion tamers. There's ringmasters, There's people cleaning up after the elephants. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on. And it, it's a twenty-year merry-go-round. You have your ups, you have your downs, but you, and there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of distractions. But you got to know at one point, one time, when to get off the ride. Because if right. you don't get off the ride, you're going to outlive your usefulness, and Sea Biscuit's going to throw you on your head. So, as much as I enjoyed my career, I knew I was forty-one years old, which is young to retire for, from a career. But I knew it was time. Things were changing around me. You know, my office was changing. People go into different units. People were retiring. I was gonna be the old guy in the office, as strange as that sounds, at 41 years old. So it was time to go. And I'm glad I did
0: pull the ripcord when I did. And that's the one parallel that uh, emergency responder first responders, emergency responders, police especially have with the military. You can start at 18 years old, you can retire at 38, or like in your case, 41 years old, and people look at, Oh, you retired? Well yeah I just did 20 years of, of a career and now I'm on to my new adult job now and look that's when I retired from the army I told people I'm going to do my adult job now like what do you mean adult job you were in the army I said that was just fun it was like playing army for 22 years it was amazing I had a great time but now I had to be an adult and actually do a job where I had to show up every day and wear different clothes every day not not wear the same uniform so it was kind of crazy for me at that point point. and looking back I, I wouldn't change anything
1: no and and you know you and I are lucky in that you know, some people take jobs because they have to, they, they might not particularly enjoy the work, but they have to, to put food on the table, health benefits. And, you know, it's a grind for me. And I, I hope for you, I mean, every day I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I had all these great experiences. It was exciting. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I mean, I love getting into car chases and chasing people and investigating cases. So,
0: you know, I, I was the right fit for the right job. Definitely. And uh, I mean, you over your 20 year career, I'm sure you you were on the force when uh, 9-11 occurred. So I'm sure that was a kind of a a bell ringer for the whole NYPD right there, because that you guys all had to respond to one of the the worst day in American history, basically, and then still patrol those same streets to make sure that people were safe. What were you what was going through your mind those days, uh, those days right after that happened?
1: Well, when 9-11 happened, that, that particular day, I was supposed to be down in lower Manhattan. I had court. I had locked some guy up for a couple of stolen cars, and he was going to flip and become a confidential informant. And my office was in the Bronx. I was supposed to be down to court at nine. We were going to pull him out of jail and, and have a meeting with his defense attorney and the district attorney and hammer out a deal to, to spring him to work for us. And uh, I was supposed to go down with my sergeant. And my sergeant was an hour late and he got to the office about eight o'clock. And I'm like, come on, we got to go. We're going to piss these people off. And while he was getting ready, the first plane hit. And uh, one of the cops from downstairs came up to our office and said, put the television set on. A plane hit the World Trade Center. So we were watching it. And then when the second plane struck, we said, oh, shit, this has got to be terrorism. Call came from downtown. Everybody get in uniform and stand by. And by 1, 30, I was down there walking around and it was crazy i mean it was it was uh, i mean i had 13 or 14 years in at, at by that point in my career so i had seen quite a bit but there was nothing to compare i mean it just was you know you got two buildings that are a pile of rubble you've got all this debris flying around um nobody really knew there was nobody knew what to do we were just down there walking around until it got organized and I was down there from about 1.30 in the afternoon till about five, 5 o'clock in the morning. And they told us, go home, get a nice, good night's sleep, and come back. And uh, I did that for about four or five days. And then they pulled us out. And then they sent us back a week or two later. We were doing the bucket brigade with all moving the debris off the pile. And then they pulled us off of that, my particular office. And then when they opened up the uh, the landfill in Staten Island to bring out when they were getting heavy equipment in and pulling out the cars and trucks and vehicles that were crushed, they had us out in Staten Island in the dump. And basically we were chopping open and and opening vehicles with like jaws of life and different types of tools to make sure no one had perished inside the vehicles.
0: Wow. And that's, and that part of your experience in in your career has to be probably the lowest point, I guess, having to go through that. What would be, what would you say was the biggest uh, high point you had during your career?
1: I had a couple. Um, I would say when I got promoted detective, my parents were there. Like when I got when I graduated the police academy, I was still a kid. You know what I mean? It was just I really didn't know what was going on. I knew I was going into field training. I didn't know what that was like. You know, I got promoted. I I had about ten years in, so that was a big deal to me. My parents were there. I knew you know I knew how the game was played more. Um, Taking down a couple of cases. We I worked on a case where we had um, people exporting. 20 to 30 stolen vehicles a month to shanghai wow. so we took that case down and solved a bunch of homicides i, I would say a lot of it was, was was you know the work the pride i took in, in the work
0: and the case work. the uh, uh, exporting cars to shanghai made, made me think of gone in 60 seconds real quick while <laughs> you were saying I was, I was thinking of nick cage driving around with the with the mustang trying to get to the boat at night and uh and there you are stopping him but uh, I'm sure that that wasn't the guy, but uh, I'm sure there was a lot more cars getting stolen than uh, what the, they had to do, 60 in one night there and uh, get them out and overseas. But shipping to Shanghai from New York, that's a pretty complicated uh, operation. And uh, I'm sure you and your team had to put a lot of hours in to break that uh, ring up.
1: Yeah, once we were on that case, it was all hands on deck. We did that case with the New York State Police and uh, the Westchester County District Attorney's Office because – they were brought into the fold because a lot of the vehicles, they were hitting dealerships in Westchester County. Like they were taking 10 cars at a shot. And uh, yeah, I know they, they were, they were doing it for well over a year. And uh, the way it worked was you had a guy in Brooklyn, uh, a Chinese guy. And what he did was he hooked up with a Jamaican middleman in the Bronx. The Jamaican guy knew all these car thieves. So the Chinese guy paid the Jamaican 5,000 a car. The Jamaican paid the thieves anywhere between $500 and $1,000 a car. They'd steal. And the order was for Audis, A6, silver and black. That's it. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, the cars were stolen. They were parked on streets to cool off to make sure they didn't have LoJack or a GPS in it. Then the cars would go, in to go into a warehouse in Brooklyn. And two stolen vehicles would go in per container. They would let the air out of the tires. So the cars would sit low in the container. Then they built a frame above it. And they drove a car or two above it, so they were getting three to four stolen vehicles per shipping container. The containers were then uh, they created a phony bill of laden. They um, a, sh- a, a, a trucking company would take the container, drive it out to Newark, New Jersey, over by Port of Elizabeth. They were loaded on trains. They were railed across the United States to Long Beach, California, and then they were put on ships for Shanghai.
0: Wow, <laughs> that's a and going for just silver and black cars i'm sure that that had to be a meticulous operation on their side to try to find just those colors and then get them shipped off to their buyers uh, well they were, their
1: buyers them. were government of, their buyers were government officials that's why they had to be one specific car and color and the funny thing is so we were up on multiple wiretaps so we had asian detectives monitoring the asian wiretaps we had Spanish cops monitor our thieves were Spanish, and we quickly figured out that a lot of our thieves were in the murder for hire business. Wow. So they were talking about whacking this guy, and I'll whack you like that guy. So when we took that case down, we solved about fifteen homicides.
0: Wow! So you cleaned the streets pretty quickly there with one one case really with the tentacles out. You grabbed, a, you cleared a lot of things. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And then that case bled into another case a year or two later where a lot of the West Indian guys, the, the friends of that Jamaican guy, they were doing, um, they were stealing cars in Westchester County in the Bronx and they were actually doing um, home invasions and burglaries. So that case kind of rolled into something else a year or two later.
0: Wow. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of cases do that. They have that domino effect where if you find this guy doing this, his partners are doing something else. And They all kind of meld, mind meld together, I guess, in the end. Yeah, I
1: mean, they all rub elbows. You know what I mean? It's just because we didn't catch this guy doesn't mean, and and it was funny because a lot of the information we got was from the first group we took down because they were singing because they were looking to cut deals. You know what I mean? And they were giving up everybody, which led into the second case.
0: So when you were, uh, I guess, just a patrolman, and you'd you'd go into a, a crime scene, and then as you became a detective going to a crime scene, what was the difference for you as a patrolman and then as a detective going in and seeing what a crime scene and how it actually works?
1: Well, I mean when you, when you're a rookie cop or, or, or new, you really there's things going on around you that you just don't understand. It's almost like being a child and adults are talking and you don't know what they're talking about. It's right. almost like they're, they're on a different frequency than you are. you know what I mean So as a rookie cop, you tend to get abused. Because so far in New York, when someone dies in a house or an apartment, no one wants to get stuck with the body. It's called sitting on a DOA. And you've got to stay with that body until the medical examiner comes and says, suspicious death, it's going to the morgue for an autopsy, or this isn't a suspicious death, the family can call a funeral home to take the body, you know, get their arrangements in order. So a lot of times as a young cop, you go on these, these DOAs in an apartment be it natural death or unnatural death. And they want you to search them to see if they have valuables, if they have their wallet on them. And the old timers aren't going to do it. And they'll throw you a set of latex gloves and go have at it kid. And sometimes you got somebody that died in their apartment. They've been dead a week or two and the gases in their body, they blow up. And I learned so much, like you've got to throw a sheet over them and just kind of like rock the body and get back. And it pops. Oh. And they're oozing all over the place, and it's like something out of a horror movie. Because now you're putting on latex gloves, and you're like, "Oh my <laughs> god!" You know what I mean? You, you're, you're touching this person that was a person. Now it's just kind of like a I can't really explain it, but it's 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 one of the the worst things I had to do. Um, later on, um, you know, going to the morgue and stuff, it doesn't bother you as much. You're just kind of used to it. And, and now you know how the game is played. You know when someone's trying to put some, something over on you. You know when someone's trying to hand you a bag of shit or someone's trying to skirt their duties. It's the same as the military. You know, right. someone's yeah, – yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're blowing smoke up your ass and then they walk away and you're like, uh, I'm – stuck. Uh, can someone help me? What the fuck is this? Right? <laughs> when you're older, you're two steps ahead of them. It's like, yeah, I, I don't think so. You know what I mean? So you learn a lot. You know what I mean? As you go along.
0: And I'm sure uh, for the listeners, when when you walk into a crime scene, it's it's not like they show on like NYPD or LA Law, or whatever. When they walk in, it's not all staged and everything. It's not all pretty as those scenes are. It's usually a chaotic scene when you arrive. So, can you t- walk through like the talk through the first couple of minutes of getting on the scene?
1: All right. So, as a detective, it, do you ever see the movie Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino? That's like a great movie. That's kind of what. I mean, glorified, but that's kind of what I did in the auto crime division. We went after crews of guys that were, we went to the, I mean, we used to go and pick off garden variety pain in the ass car thieves, but we went after the guys that were running operations, the chop shops and stuff. So I wasn't like a detective in a precinct squad that responds to a homicide. I was more part of a group that targeted guys if they were up in the middle of the night driving around stealing cars, we were up in the middle of the night following them stealing cars. You know what I mean? So, But I can walk you through as far as as a patrol cop walking in. I, I walked in on a couple of homicides. I'll tell you a story. Early in my career, probably had about three, four years in the job, comes over as a cardiac. My partner and I go into this six-story walk-up. There's people screaming in the hallway. We get into the apartment, and they had a galley kitchen, and I saw a set of legs coming out of the kitchen on the floor. So I walk into the kitchen. There's a woman laid out on the floor. There's a young man on top of her just screaming, mom, 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 mom. We get him off of her, and she's been stabbed to death numerous times, right? There's blood all over the kitchen, all over the walls on the phone. Now, you know, when you cut yourself, blood is bright red. But over time, when oxygen gets to it, it turns a brown or a rust color. So we tell the young man, we sit the young man down, and the apartment's been ransacked. And he's crying and he's upset. He just lost his mother. And we weren't putting the screws to him. I mean, we were just asking him, when was the last time you saw your mother? And all of a sudden, he starts getting weird. Like, when was the last time I saw my mother? Yeah, about four hours ago. Now, all of a sudden, he's serious as a heart attack. You know, do you know who would do something like this? Do I know who would do something like this? So he's buying time. Every time I ask him a question, he's repeating the question. Now, like I said, the apartment was ransacked, but what stood out is when a burglar breaks into your house or apartment, they're dumping shit all over the floor, right? And rooting through things. They don't dump stuff out and then put the drawers back. So it was obvious to us the crime scene was staged. Like her bag was turned upside down. It wasn't tossed. It was placed right side up and credit cards were there. So that's the first thing a bad guy is going to take is the credit cards, especially in the nineties when you really couldn't track them like you could today. So the detectives take him to the precinct to interview him, and I'm tasked with my partner to stay with the body until the medical examiner comes and stuff. So in New York, when, uh, when, when a body goes to the morgue, the responding cops got it. It's a, a little piece of oak tag with a string. You write all your information, the deceased's name on it, and you tie it around their toe. It's called a toe tag for identification. So I go back to the precinct and I'm vouchering some of the evidence and I asked the detectives, I go, what's going on with this guy? And they go, we don't know if he did it, but he's not really, he knows a lot more than he's saying. And the young man had three uncles who lived across the street and um, they were asking a lot of questions. So the guy didn't ask for a lawyer, but he said he wanted to go home. So you know, once he asked for a lawyer, all bets are off. So the detectives backed off and said, yeah, yeah you want to go home, go home. That with with the mindset we'll go we'll make a run at him tomorrow morning. The following morning, I had to go to the morgue at Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx. Skeleton crew Sunday afternoon. I go in there. There's a kid working. I hand him the paperwork. I said, I want to see the deceased because you have to ID the body the next day. The responding cop has for identification purposes. He goes into this refrigerated room. He wheels out a gurney. He pulls off a sheet. It's a black guy. I said, no, female Hispanic. Here's the name. He goes, oh, puts the sheet over the dead guy's face, goes into the room, wheels out another thing, pulls off the sheet. It's a Hispanic wino. I go, dude, I didn't come here to see everybody that got whacked in the Bronx last night. I'm here to see this. You know what? Let me inside. So I go into this refrigerator room, and it's not like TV with the drawers. It's a big refrigerated room, you know, oh. like you see in a beer distributor, you know, like, you know, <laughs> you go into seven 11 and you open the cooler and you look inside and there's like a refrigerator room in back of your, your, your energy drink. Right. <laughs> so I'm in the energy drink right, room. Right. And I, I see all of these bodies and it's like, it smells. I'm like, this is a fucking horror movie. So finally I recognize my handwriting on one of the toe tags. I pull the sheet off. I ID the woman. I, I head back to the precinct and all the detectives are high-fiving each other. They're all excited. I go, what happened? What happened? What did I miss? And they said, well, we got up bright and early. We go to the apartment building. And when we hit the hallway, we heard screaming. The uncles, had their nephew in the hallway. And thank God those detectives spoke Spanish. Because <laughs> they were like, what happened with your mother? We want to know. And he gave it up. Oh, wow. He, he told his uncles that he did it. What happened was... He was he was like 19, as I remember it correctly, turned into a crackhead and he would go back and forth. He'd be on crack. He'd get off a of crack. And then when he was using, he'd steal from his mother and he was abusive. So she told him, I can't have this anymore. You got to leave. So he picked up a carving knife from the kitchen and stabbed her to death. And then what he did was he he took the um, he took the he took the bloody clothes and the murder weapon. and He put it in a plastic bag. Oh, wow. He leaves the door ajar hoping that while he's gone disposing of the of the evidence someone will find his mother and then he'll come back and go oh shit. He goes, he gets on the train, goes downtown, gets rid of the plastic bag with the clothes and the knife, comes back 3-4 hours later and the door is still ajar, no one found his mother so now he's like oh shit. People outside are seeing me coming and going, I can't leave again, right? I live here. So he goes through the whole thing of picking up the phone and starting the ball rolling which backfires because Ultimately, he he was convicted, and uh, I just recently checked, and he's in there. It's going to be like 28 years. He's still in jail, and rightfully so.
0: Wow. Oof. And all, all because he got hooked on the sauce, basically. And uh, thankfully, yeah. you, as even a, a young cop at the time, were able to identify that, and that showed your path to the rest of your career. And that's an that's a eye-opener for you to say, hey, I can do this job, too. Same as these guys who wear suits every day and I, and you did it well.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. You know what it is? It's um you know, everybody reacts differently. There's no set way to act. Some people w- w- when something hits them terribly, they get really quiet and stoic. Other people go to pieces, other people pace and and go and just go fucking batshit crazy. So there's no particular way, but just the fact that he went from hysterical to all of a sudden quiet. And then he's repeating my questions. It was obvious something was more that, you know, he wasn't telling us.
0: Right. All right. So we're going to pivot here. Uh, I know we talked earlier about you being an author. Let's talk a little bit more. How did you become an author? What was your influence to, did you know you wanted to become a writer when you were younger or it was just, just something because friends and family say, hey, you need to write your stories? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, I had, it
1: never occurred to me to write a book. When I was, when I, you know, it's funny when I was retiring, I was down at the Jersey shore. As Soon as I retired from the NYPD, I rented a house down in, um, Oh God. Uh, just outside of Bradley beach. Oh, Bradley beach. And I had a a little bungalow down there and I said, you know, I'm going to write a book and I, 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 it, it never came to fruition. And then when I retired a couple of years later from re-retired from that police department down in Florida, I just, I just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And it it took me a couple of years to to crank out my first book, but now that I've got the, you know, the system and the process going, I average about a book a year. I I love every minute of it. And I'm seeing, I think six on here right now. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Four NYPD based. And, uh, My latest is called "Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate." It's got a picture of a kid in a Catholic high school uniform running out of a confession booth, being chased by a priest. That really (laughs) happened to me. Um, No, I wasn't molested, but when you confess one (laughs) too many sins with with an old drunken priest, it can lead to a foot chase through an empty church.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure your your parish priest, like ours in New Jersey, uh, even though the the confessionals uh, confidential. Your parents would know by the time you got home what you confessed. So no matter what you confessed, you were still getting in trouble at home. My dad was waiting
1: outside that particular day when that happened. And I, when I was running out of the church, the priest was on my heels. I shut the lights off to the church to put some distance between he and I. And uh, me and my brother ran out to the car. And I'm just looking at the church, waiting for this guy to come running out. And uh, he didn't. And my father, all of a sudden now my dad wants to talk. So how did it go? Was the priest upset you were late? And I'm like, my father never wanted to talk to me after work. Now he's on Donnie. I'm like, can we just go? Yeah. And a uh, couple of days later when I'm making my confirmation, I'm sitting in, I, you know, kids got the memory of a fly. I figured this is over. We don't go to mass. I'm never going to see this priest again. And a couple of days later, I'm sitting in a classroom, um, my CCD classroom to make my confirmation And the priest comes into the classroom and it was like a police lineup. He looked across the room and he pointed right at me and he goes, I'd like to have a word with that young man. And the teacher said, yeah, sure. And he dragged me outside. He threw me in another classroom. Right. And he's just throttling me about against the blackboard, smacking the shit out of me. And I remember as I'm getting pummeled, I look up and I saw the ABCs in cursive. So it's like, I just kind of concentrated on that until the beating was over And, uh, he goes, get out of here. And he chased me out. And uh, I was like, thank God he didn't tell my father. Cause you know, it was personal and he wanted to be the one to get his licks in. But, you know, truth be told, if he would have told my father would have done a far better job, but, um, Oh, listen, I wasn't an abused kid, but I was a little son of a bitch and I got, you know, I got as good as I gave, you know what I mean? It's, I was always in trouble as a kid, not, not bad stuff, but just, screwing around and talking back and just doing you know things of the 70s and 80s when you could get away with
0: things right and uh, our parents back then disciplined us in uh, the oh, way shit. they were taught not they wasn't abuse it was uh learning points i like to call it and i think we oh. learned we learned many lessons as youth
1: oh my dad was like indiana jones with the belt or my mother <laughs> oh shit with the wood spoon or I remember one time my mother took off her high heel shoe. She was chasing me around a table. And if you ever get hit in the top of the head with the point of a high heel, it's like, I think I can still feel like an indentation in there, man. I mean, she's a <laughs> little son of a bitch. It's a ding, ding thing. As I was running around the table. You're embarrassing the family.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, right. Don't bring that shit home. Right. <laughs> I think we, uh, all it, with, with both our names, I think we, uh, we understood a lot of what, uh, those, the rules were in a Catholic school. Of course, uh, didn't help me much at all. It it taught me a lot of things about discipline and the brass ruler of a nun. So I had PTSD from a nun for a long time. So (laughs) the army was nothing compared to her. (laughs) It's funny
1: because when you're in your formative years, like in that book, Catholic Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, I went to public school up until eighth grade. And my dad was sitting at the dinner table. He goes, "Um, next year, you're going to Catholic high school. I'm like, what? We don't even go to mass. And he goes... Cause you're a clown. And if you go to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. So pick a school run by the people in black. And that's basically, you know, and I, I went to an all boys Catholic high school and I had the best time, but before, you know, but half my friends were going, you know, when you're a kid, you think you're going to be with your friends forever. Right. You don't realize that people are going to go their different directions and come and go through your life. But I needed that, that, that discipline and that formality that helped me with the police department structure.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it helped you out. And I'm sure it also helped you with uh, your discipline now to, to pump out these books. So if you don't mind, if you want to give it three tips to an aspiring author out there, if that wants to self publish, especially how do they get their stuff going and how do they get their name out there? Okay. So
1: if you're going to be a self published author and you're going to write a book all by yourself, don't write in chronological order because I, I'm not skilled enough to write in chronological order. And it, it will frustrate you and you'll never get your book project off the ground. You know what your book's going to be about, right? So pick a topic or something that's going to be enjoyable for you in the book, a story or something, and stick with that. And then when you hit completion with that or, or you hit writer's block, step away, go to another story, and then tie everything together like a Seinfeld episode at the end. <laughs> Stay away. If, if, there's, if you go online and you want to self-publish – you can Google and all these companies are going to pop up. Give us five, give us three, give us $10,000. We'll edit your book. We're going to promote it. They're going to rip you off. You don't need a partner. You're already going to have to go to Amazon that takes a percentage. Do everything yourself. Find a reputable editor. I use a company by the name of ebook launch. It's like an a la carte service. So if you just want your book cover design, they'll, they'll design your book cover front and back, you know, so they'll do the cover. You'll do the jacket on the back with with the blurb and your photo on the back. That's about five hundred bucks because they create for a paperback and ebook. Their editing is is oh here's another thing: don't edit a book yourself and don't give your book after it's done to your friend's sister who's a teacher or a grammar Nazi. It's still not going to be done right.
0: <laughs>
1: Run it through a copy edit. You send your book off. You send your manuscript for a copy edit. They'll send it back to you with all the changes you can agree or disagree. Then once that's done, send it away again for, for a proofread, which that really combs it out nice, right? Then once that's done, spend 150 bucks and get it formatted. When I mean formatted is so you got your manuscript, they line everything up. So when it gets uploaded into ebook form or paperback form on the Amazon platform, everything is nice. The fonts are nice and everything. Don't do it yourself; it's going to look like shit. <laughs> so, it you for me, my my, my books are about sixty thousand words, between fifty five and sixty thousand words. That's about two hundred and twenty five to two hundred and thirty five pages. For me, all in book cover, the two rounds of edits and formatting. I'm in at twenty five hundred bucks. Okay, so the way I play it is, I want to I want to hit that number. I want to hit 2500 bucks or damn close to it in a year. So how am I going to do that? Don't pay people to market your book. You can do it yourself. You create a Facebook author page for yourself. You can create a Facebook page for your book. Get a Twitter account. Get an Instagram account. And then just start hashtagging it with, with things that are associated with the topic of your book. So I write books about the New York City Police Department. I'm always tagging articles about the police department, or I have tons of photos from when I was a cop that I tag with it. Here's another underused resource that people don't realize. You can create Craigslist ads for your book and drop them in multiple markets across the country. You can't put the link to your book, but you can put now available on Amazon, you know, t- NYPD tell all book. And you use, and you put a bunch of photos up on the Craigslist ad and what I do is I, I tend to – I look for zip codes, heavily populated zip codes, and I dump Craigslist ads of my book and all – and it's free advertising because if someone sees it, can they order your book that way? No, but now it's in front of them like, oh, you know what? That's pretty interesting. Let me go on Amazon and look that up. Right. Uh, and another way is like, like we were speaking about earlier. Go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, and search podcasts. Write a cover letter like I did with you. Hi, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired, you know, 20-year member of the New York City Police Department, turned author. I've written a series of books about the police department. Here's the link to my book. You know, blah 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 blah. I'd love to be a guest on your show. And you'll get the interviews because there's people out there dying, you know, podcast guests need, you know, people that that they can come on their forums. So you know it's um once you get into the book writing business you have to market it as much as you can or it's not going to sell
0: awesome great advice uh if you're a writer out there listening heed that advice write it down you can rewind later and get that advice again if you miss some of that but like he said don't overspend your budget and do what you can at your level to get that thing going like for him twenty five hundred dollars all in per book I think that should be a, the ceiling for most of uh, first-time writers, anyway, unless you have that kind of uh, fu money in the bank to start being an author. So, Vic, thanks for taking some of your time tonight to come and uh, share your story with us here on the Misfit Nation.
1: Thanks. Can I just can I just uh, plug my 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 Amazon? Go ahead. Page? Sure. So all my books are ten bucks. They make great stocking stuffers. If you just go to Amazon and type in Vic Ferrari, like the car. Um, again, they're all, you know, $10, it's great stock stocking stuffer behind the scenes about the New York city police department and two 99 ebook download. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you got a question just I'm at Vic Ferrari five zero.
0: Awesome. And the link is scrolling across the bottom right now. If you haven't uh, looked at that, it's the long link, but if you see his name on there, there's only probably one Vic Ferrari that's an author on there. So hopefully you get the right books with NYPD. Don't buy the ones that say, uh. Something with porn or anything. So just go the opposite direction if you see those things. But Vic, once again, thanks for taking some of your time to be on. I'll talk to you after the break here. Sure. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are...